0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. As you know, Jesus is in his Passion Week. He's just days away from celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He's just days away from the very climax of his ministry as he will go to that Roman crucifix. And he's spending these last days here on earth in the temple courts, teaching, interacting with the religious leaders of his day. And this morning we see another confrontation as he is confronted by the Sadducees who try to trip him up with another uh, seemingly perplexing question. So Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word to you this morning. There came to him, that is Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second... And the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, as you know, in the recent context of Luke chapter 20, Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts and has been confronted uh, by um, literally every segment of the religious leadership. (laughs) He's been confronted by the chief priests, by the scribes, by the elders, by the principal men of the people, trying to trip him up, trying to challenge his authority. And now this morning, we see this confrontation From the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were priestly wealthy aristocrats in the first century. They had the duty of of keeping charge over the temple and they also were were people who loved maintaining the status quo. You can imagine that they were not too fond of Jesus. They loved the status quo and they saw Jesus as a threat to the tranquility of their status quo. This Jesus, who has just declared himself to be the King of the Jews, riding in on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. This Jesus, who had the audacity to cleanse the temple courts and overturn the money tables. This Jesus, who also had the audacity to declare himself the cornerstone, the cornerstone of a new and greater temple. So, of course, they see Jesus as a threat, someone who's going to disrupt their status quo. And so they come to Jesus with what they think is a very difficult question. A question about the resurrection. Luke tells us that the Sadducees were known for denying a future bodily resurrection. Now, I imagine most Christians, at least in terms of their confession, would, would believe in, in a future bodily resurrection. But I think it's easy for us to functionally, functionally live as if this is all there is. We get lulled to sleep, as it were, in our ordinary routines and tasks throughout our, our weeks, and, and we forget that we're a pilgrim people. We forget that our identity and citizenship isn't fundamentally here in this age, but our fundamental identity belongs in the age to come. And those, so these Sadducees, these Sadducees who deny the resurrection, they, they're not just denying the resurrection, but they're also implicitly denying the very mission of our Lord. Because when Jesus came to this earth, he wasn't merely coming to temporarily help the downtrodden of the first century for another 5, 10, or 15 years. That's not the ultimate meaning of, of his miracles and, he, and, and healings. Rather, Jesus came to this earth to bring everlasting redemption for both our souls and our bodies. And so those healings are illustrative of what Jesus will do in his second coming when he will not just give us temporary healing, but permanent healing in the resurrection of the body. So this morning, Jesus is reminding us, reminding us, of our fundamental identity of, of as citizens of the age to come, reminding us of this living hope that Peter talks about. This living hope of a future resurrection of the dead, reminding us that we're a pilgrim people. Indeed, this is why the Lord has given us the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, to take a break from our ordinary routines and call to mind, call to mind who we truly are. And so, this morning, what I'd like us to do is to consider the question within, in context, and then. We'll consider Jesus' teaching on the resurrection. And I'll draw out a number of points. As I mentioned, these Sadducees that approached Jesus, they were known for denying the resurrection, a future bodily resurrection. But Acts chapter 23 tells us that they not only denied a future bodily resurrection, but they also denied the existence of, of a soul, of a spirit, and the existence of angels. So that's important to keep in mind as we go through this passage. But we also know that these Sadducees were known for having a a very limited canon. So we sometimes speak about the canon of scripture, the books of of scripture. At this time, the Jews had the canon of the Old Testament. And the Sadducees believed that the Torah, the Torah which were the five books of Moses, Or sometimes called the Pentateuch. They believed that those books were the books that were ultimately authoritative. So they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. They also saw the prophets and the writings as still being useful but being underneath the Torah. So they had a very limited canon. Moses is who they appealed to. The prophets they were nice but they weren't as authoritative as Moses which is why in their question, they appeal to Moses. A law that Moses teaches us in Deuteronomy. Now how do these Sadducees refer to Jesus? By what title do they use? Teacher, teacher. Now in the Gospel of Luke, when someone addresses Jesus as teacher, it should be a cue, a signal to us that this is someone outside of the circle of disciples. Someone who is, maybe on the fence about Jesus, or someone who is directly opposed to Jesus. Remember last week, that's how the scribes and the chief priests addressed Jesus when they came with this thorny political question. Teacher, it's less than sincere. And the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we have a question for you. And their question is alluding to a law that Moses taught. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and it's sometimes referred to as a Leverite view or law of marriage. And this law that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 25 said that if a man marries a woman and the husband dies before a child is born, before the, the woman is granted a child, then if that husband has a brother, that brother is required to marry the widow and provide her a child. Now the Sadducees took this and and believed that this is the way that one lived on in the afterlife. One's afterlife existed in one's seed. Now if one wasn't able to produce seed himself, the brother would allow the dead husband's name to carry on. And so this is what they're appealing to when they say, uh, appeal to this, this law that Moses taught in the Old Testament. And they say, teacher, we have a question for you. And now they're assuming the validity of the resurrection. They're, they're assuming that it's true. So they are saying, Jesus, let, let's assume that the resurrection, a future bodily resurrection is indeed true. How would you answer this? And they come up with a hypothetical. Like, you know what Moses taught. You know this principle. Let's say that, that a man marries this woman and he dies before uh, the woman conceives and bears a child. And this now dead husband has six brothers. And so the next brother marries the widow, but he dies before a child is born. And the next brother marries the widow, and he dies before the child is born. And this goes on until all seven brothers have died and there's no child. Now, when that woman dies and enters into the afterlife, a resurrected physical bodily afterlife, this woman is now going to be confronted with seven brothers vying for her affection, whose Wife will she be? Notice that the logic behind their question. They're trying to reduce the belief in a future bodily resurrection to absurdity. This this doctrine is absolutely ridiculous. It's going to end in a chaotic afterlife. For those who have had multiple spouses through death or divorce, how how is this going to, to work? It's a difficult question, is it not? I would imagine many Jews in, 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 the, in the historical context would be scratching their head as well. Yeah, we believe in the resurrection, but we never thought of that. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't think that it's going to be a polygamous state of affairs, but it, it seems kind of chaotic. Well, huh? And what, how would you answer this question, Jesus? Now, Jesus, in response to uh, the Sadducees' question, he he takes it apart in in two main ways. You'll notice that first, he he challenges the assumption behind behind their question. The, The Sadducees were assuming the validity of the resurrection, but they were assuming a particular definition of the resurrection. They were assuming the Pharisees' understanding of the resurrection. And we know that the Pharisees believed in a future bodily resurrection, but their belief, their understanding of the afterlife, of the future bodily resurrection was one in which uh, the afterlife was very, very similar to this present age. There's a very close identity between this age and the age to come minus maybe the imperfections and the sin, but the normal going ons of, of this, this world, this age will carry over into the age to come. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, you may be debunking the Pharisees view of the resurrection, but you're not debunking my view of the resurrection, scripture's view of the resurrection. And so he challenges their assumption. He says, you need to be working with the right understanding and definition of the resurrection of the body. So if you look with me at verses 34 through uh, 36, Jesus says this. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." What's the contrast that's going on here in in these verses? Contrast is between this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. There are certain institutions that are God-ordained, that are legitimate, but are provisional, which means that they're only for this age and will not carry over into the age to come. That's Jesus's point here. Now a few weeks ago we considered in our catechism service that that God rules life outside the church through the covenant that he made with Noah. So if you wanna understand the theological foundation for how God rules life outside the church, we look to the covenant that he made with Noah. And we see that in that covenant that he made with Noah, he gave mankind in general a number of responsibilities. Uh, responsibilities. They were called to be fruitful and to multiply, which touches upon what institutions? Marriage and the family, the natural family. He says that mankind will be given plants and animals to eat, which is an implicit call to work because we know that ancient civilization plants and animals didn't immediately turn into food on one's plate. It was an implicit call to work to provide for the growing needs of a society. This touches upon enterprise institutions. I imagine everyone's day job here, at least generally speaking, is devoted to providing for the needs of society. And then the other responsibility that God gives to mankind through that covenant he made with Noah is the task of enforcing justice. Proportionate or tribute of justice. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. Which touches upon judicial institutions, institutions of, of the institution of government. Those are institutions that God has ordained. While the earth remains, which means they're legitimate, but they're for this age. While the earth remains, the institution of the family, of marriage, of of. Of work throughout the week to provide for the needs of, of a society, the institution of, of civil government. These things are good things, but they're provisional, temporary, for this age. They will not be brought over into the age to come. And Jesus here is specifically talking about the institution of marriage. A good thing, it's a God ordained thing, but it's for this age. This is what the Sadducees failed to understand. They failed to see the differences between this age and the age to come. The only thing that we know, scripturally speaking, that will be directly brought over into the new creation is our bodies. Our bodies will be resurrected, brought over in a recognizable way. But beyond that, we're not giving any promises. We're not giving promises that our artist's work will, be, uh, will adorn the new creation. This is what the Sadducees failed failed to understand. Now, upon hearing this, we might be a little disappointed. For those of us who are married, we probably should be a little disappointed that marriage won't persist in the new creation. We have to remember that even though that if our spouse is a believer, they will be in the new creation. And even though it's not within the confounds of this institution of marriage, we will have a deeper, more intimate bond with them, even though it's not strictly called marriage. And furthermore, as C.S. Lewis says, all the, the best things in this life, so the best aspects of your marriage with your spouse, those things are just a mirage of the bliss of the age to come. And so, we have to keep that in mind. So Jesus is is correcting their definition of of marriage. One needs a proper contrast and understanding of this age as compared to the age to come. And and this is why Jesus throughout the gospel so often speaks about about one's bond with the family of God is deeper than one's bond with natural kin. And so, for us as Christians, we have one, one foot in this age and then one foot in the age to come. And so we live in between these two ages and, and our bond with brothers and sisters in Christ is indeed stronger than our bond with, with natural kin who, who are outside the family of God. Because we are members of that, that coming age. Well, if you consider the second part of Jesus' response, so verses 34 through 36, he corrects their definition of marriage, but then he moves on to discuss the true and proper reading of Moses. And notice that Jesus doesn't appeal to the prophets. There are many passages in the prophets that speak more explicitly about the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus doesn't go there. He goes to the Sadducees' own territory. He goes to the Torah. He goes to what Moses spoke of in the first five books of Scripture. Why does he do that? Well, he knows that if he appeals to the prophets, he's going to change the nature of the debate. The debate's now going to turn into the validity or authority of the prophets' writings, and not over the validity of the resurrection of the dead. And so he he battles these Sadducees in their own territory. He says, yeah, let's consider what Moses actually taught. And so he says in verse 37, But that the dead are raised, even Moses... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Remember that that chapter divisions, verse uh, versification didn't occur to the Middle Ages. So Jesus here is alluding to Exodus chapter 3, but he doesn't explicitly allude to Exodus chapter 3 because there were no chapters, no versification. People just knew the the scrolls really, really well. In fact, some had them memorized, and so they would appeal to, to segments of uh, of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is doing, doing so here. And he, he alludes to this narrative where God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. And if you may remember this narrative, God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush, calling Moses, calling Moses to go to Egypt and to redeem God's people Israel out of bondage to Pharaoh and bring them to his promised land. Now, what was, uh, Moses' initial response to this. Who am I? How, how am I going to be equipped to do such a great thing as, as bring your people out of the, the grip of Pharaoh? I'm not qualified to do this. And furthermore, he says, even if I get there and Israel says, well, well, well who's sending you, Moses? And Moses, well, well, the God of your fathers. Well, what's his name? Moses asks, well, what should I say? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God says, I am who I am. Or more literally, I will be who I will be. One of the great declarations about the character of God. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is speaking to the immutability of God. That it is impossible for God to mutate or change. He just is. Theologians sometimes speak about Uh, how how God has no potential in him. He's fully actualized. Now we know in our common language, we we talk about so-and-so, he he has has great potential to be a great leader one day, meaning that he's not a great, he or she is not a great leader now, but displays certain characteristics that if fostered and developed could lead to being uh, great leadership uh, qualities. So the whole idea of potential means that There's change, there's flux, and we as human beings are constantly changing. We have the potential for great good, but we also have the potential for for great sin if we indulge our our vices. Boys and girls, you're probably starting school soon. And I would imagine that this year, you're gonna be learning new content that you didn't learn last year, and that you are probably taller this year than you were last year. Remember growing up, every first day of school, I'd be measured by my parents and I loved seeing how much I grew from the year before. It's illustrative of our life. We're constantly changing, and you will constantly change as you grow up and and enter adulthood. We're never the same person we were yesterday, and we won't be the same person tomorrow that we are today. We're constantly changing. Not so with God. He is. There is no potential in Him. I am who I am. I will be who I will be in the context of Exodus chapter 3. This is meant to be a means of assurance and comfort to Moses. Moses is terrified, he's shocked. He doesn't know what to think of God's call upon his life and God is assuring him that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. not, Not that he was, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he's saying, Moses, you remember these stories about your forefathers, the stories about how I was faithful to them. And I'm going to be the same God to you as I was to them. I'm going to be the same God to Israel as I was to them. Not just through the Exodus, but even at and after death. God is revealing himself as a God with whom Moses can depend upon because he does not change. And particularly, the point that Jesus is wanting to draw our attention to is this this, this, this statement where God declares himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's not saying that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense, which assumes what or, or implies what? Implies that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still have existence. God presently is their God, sustaining them, ministering to them. So Jesus uses this as a proof text for why the resurrection exists, why an afterlife exists, why our souls exist. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Reformed churches have recognized that the way in which we establish doctrine is twofold. We establish doctrine by explicit proof texts, and there are some doctrines in scripture that we have many explicit proof texts. You think of the, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. God created everything out of nothing. Many, many, many texts that speak explicitly to that doctrine. But there are other te- uh, doctrines in which there are not explicit proof texts, and so we have to use what's called good and necessary consequence, which means implicit texts. So when you look at Exodus chapter three, Moses is not specifically addressing the, the question of the resurrection. The purpose of the text was to, to uh, speak about God calling Moses and to, to speak about the character of God. But Jesus recognizes that it's also implicitly speaking to the validity of the doctrine of the resurrection, which shows that some doctrines can be and should be established through implicit texts, Yes, implicit tec- explicit text, explicit texts when we have them, but also implicit texts or good and necessary consequences because that's what we see Jesus doing here as he appeals to Moses into Exodus chapter three to prove that there is an afterlife. And yes, Moses doesn't speak explicitly and parse out all the details of our soul and our body and the immediate state and what happens when we die and the separation, he doesn't do that, but he merely asserts that there is existence after our earthly death. Now when we trace out this use of this phrase, we see that Peter takes up this phrase himself in, in Luke's second book, the Acts of the Apostles. And Peter himself may have, have, have been here and heard Jesus' teaching. In Acts chapter 3, Jesus, uh, Peter is, is preaching at Solomon's portico and, uh, to the Jews, and he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, The God of Jacob is the same God who has glorified his servant, Jesus Christ. So Peter connects that phrase that Jesus appeals to, to the glorification and resurrection of Christ. And so the resurrection of Christ is indeed the clearest proof, the clearest assurance of our future bodily resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the first fruits of of the resurrection. Boys and girls, I once heard it said that, that, that Christ, as the first fruits of our resurrection, it's like a train. You probably have all sat through a, a train as it passes through your vehicle as you're, you're uh, sitting before the tracks. And when you see that first car, you know that you're going to see the caboose, the last car. It's just a matter of time. Why? Because the train's connected. And so, too, because we're united to Christ, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection because we're connected to him. We're united to him. And so what has happened to him will necessarily happen to us. Just as the caboose will go wherever that front car goes because they're all connected. And it makes sense that Peter would connect this phrase of God presently being a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the resurrection of Christ. Because when we consider how God was a God to Abraham, we know that God promised Abraham a land, the land of Canaan. But Abraham recognized that the land of Canaan was not the fulfillment of that promise. What was the fulfillment of that promise? The new creation. Abraham, in in Hebrews, Abraham is said to have pursued not merely an earthly land of Canaan, but he sought the city that was to come. So Abraham was longing, looking forward to this new creation, this age of resurrection, but looked on it from afar. And when does this age, this age of resurrection dawn? It dawns with the resurrection of Christ. This tells us that God's plan all along was to bring his people to his seventh day Sabbath rest, to bring his people to the new creation. That wasn't his plan B. It's not as if God, God originally intended that his people live forever in the Garden of Eden and then we messed that up and then he was going to have his people live forever in Palestine, but then they messed that up and then he sends his son. Jews reject him and then he has to do this whole plan of of, of the resurrection age. You know, God's plan all along. From the very beginning of Scripture was to bring humanity to this new creation. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a God and Father to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is this for? Notice that we see in this passage that Jesus says that this promise of a blessed resurrection is only for those who are counted worthy to attain the resurrection of the dead. All this is great and good. But unless we can answer that question in the affirmative, this doesn't apply to us. How do we become a people who are counted worthy of attaining this resurrection from the dead? That's really the main question of this passage. How do we go from merely belonging to this age to belonging to the age to come? We know that that Adam and Eve, after they sinned in Genesis chapter 3, they were exiled east of Eden. They were also barred from the tree of life, a tree of life which functioned as a sacrament, a sign and seal of, of, of this coming age, the new creation. What that teaches us is that mankind, because of their sin, They're unable, unable to attain that age, unable to be accounted worthy by their own merits of this resurrection age. This is exactly why Jesus came. He came as the second Adam, He came as the true Israel of God, He came and He perfectly obeyed. He Loved the Lord his God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gave to God his wholehearted devotion and obedience. As we saw last week, he was the perfect image bearer of God. He died, he went to the cross, and he satisfied in his flesh, in his body, the sins of all of his people. And then he, as the first human being, rose from the dead. He was the first individual to conquer death and have a glorified human existence and to ascend into that new creation, that seventh day Sabbath rest where God is currently residing. And in that ascension, he sits, which declares to us that he is in that rest. Jesus was the only one who could say that he, by his own merits, is is counted worthy to attain the age to come. Jesus was the only person who was able to do that. So Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation, that's another way to, to refer to this age to come, this resurrection age. A son of the resurrection, as Jesus says here. It's, there's synonyms. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, which means the only way in which we are counted worthy to attain this coming age is if we are in Christ. Is if we're united to Christ by faith. That's the only way. And what happens when we're united to Christ by faith? Well, his performance, his work is imputed, credited uh, to our account. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made Christ to be sin. So if you're united to Christ, what that means is that on the cross, Jesus particularly and personally had you in mind and satisfied God's wrath for every single one of your sins, even the sins that you have not committed yet. So God made Christ to be sin your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. God then clothes you naked, with nothing to boast in, close you with the perfect righteous and holy merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you can say, not based on your own merits, but based on the merits of Christ, you can say that I've been counted worthy to attain the age to come. Anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of the gospel. And we know that... Even in our ordinary life, promises are only comforting if it comes from a reliable person. We all know people who are big talkers, and we don't take their word with, uh, uh, we only take their word with a grain of salt. So why can we trust this promise of the gospel? We can trust this promise of the gospel because it's coming from a God who does not change. A God who declares himself to be, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. A God who says that there is no variation or shadow due to change. A God who does not change his mind because he's not a creature. A God whose counsel is everlasting. A counsel which includes your election, your redemption, your forgiveness. That's why we can place our firm and hearty confidence and trust in this seemingly outrageous message of the gospel because it's founded upon the character of a God who does not change. Now, you're probably here this morning and could characterize yourself as the man in the Gospels who says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, I believe that, but I struggle in my ordinary existence in life to, to really trust and believe that I'm forgiven when I continue to struggle with, with the same sins. I struggle to believe that that I'm righteous and I'm holy when I so often feel so unrighteous and so unholy, when I feel sick in soul. I struggle to believe this. Well, know that this morning, God, the God of the universe, is declaring to you personally that you are forgiven that you are righteous, that you do have a living hope, not because you have the right subjective feelings, but because he has united yourself to his risen son. And you can trust that you can depend upon that because of who God is, it would be easier for God to deny himself than for him to deny you. That's true no matter how you feel no matter how your day is going. Be easier for God to deny himself than for him to deny you. We know that this passage concludes with Jesus once again putting his interlocutors to silence. The religious leaders are unable to put a question before him that's too perplexing. And they, at some point, realize that the more questions they ask, the more silly they look. And so next week we are going to see Jesus asking them a question, a question that comes from Psalm 100 verse 10. But remember, remember that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God and father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ is your God and your father has granted you a living hope, a living hope of a future bodily resurrection. And so rest in that, rest in that this Lord's day, rest in that as you go out into another